Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm an actor writer with an interest in the intimate. We want to fill the gap in the nation's sex and relationship education through interviewing guests on how we relate to our bodies when it comes to sex, identity and, of course, pleasure. It's the finale of season four. Thank you to all our guests and Pleasure Podders for making this a brilliant season. We've reached more people than ever before. We love our growing community and are thrilled to know you're as passionate as us when it comes to talking about pleasure. I'm taking a break to have my babies, uh, but we'll be back in January with a brand new season. Don't worry, there's a juicy archive of episodes to explore, so please dig in. But now for our finale guest, and this really is a special one. It's international changemaker, Black Pride co-founder, MBE rejecting, aptly named Lady Phil. Phil Apoku-Gima co-founded UK Black Pride. She's the Exec Director of Kaleidoscope, a trust supporting LGBTQ plus activists around the world, and she successfully campaigns for the better treatment of people of colour in the LGBTQ plus community. This year, she was voted number four on the Pride Power List. This is a gloriously personal conversation where we discuss the genesis of UK Black Pride and Phil's search for intimacy after her marriage ended and she was able to fully explore her sexuality with women. She shares the emotional connection found in her first sexual experience with a woman, which allowed her to be seen in the most profound way, as well as her thoughts on polyamory and having sex that allows for vulnerability rather than performance. Not ignoring, of course, the simple joy of fucking. In a Zoom miracle in under an hour, the three of us fell in love. We hope you do too. I grew up in London for a little bit, lived on this wonderful council estate called Woodbury Down in um, Manor House. And we moved quite a bit because my parents came to this country, I would say, as, you know, working migrants um, from Ghana. And we were then in Edmonton. And I remember my mum and dad saying, we want you to take this test to go to one of the, the best schools ever. And I was hating the fact that I'd have to do that because it was a school which was predominantly white. Took the test and then I got moved out to Hertfordshire where I spent the majority of my time in a school which I was the only black kid there for three, three and a half years. Um, And yeah, I think when people say, oh, what was your coming out experience or journey at that time? I wasn't coming out as LGBT plus then I was coming out as black constantly because of what I had to navigate, what I had to deal with, the sort of systemic racism that existed at a time, you know, I'm heading towards my 50s now. So at a time which felt quite hostile. 
And then, yeah, I left Hertfordshire and then came straight back into London. Was that a big relief, suddenly coming back to London and being so surrounded by people of all different ethnicities rather than being in such a white school? It was, but, you know, I found that... I, I spoke a certain way, whatever that was, and I was never black enough for my black friends mm. and I was too black for my white friends. So <laughs> it just felt like, oh, you can't win. And everyone looks for this place to belong, don't they? We all look for whether it is about intimacy or whether it's about pleasure, whether we are into fetish stuff or whether we're into knitting whatever it may be we're we're all looking for a place to be so you know I found myself searching doing a lot of soul searching for who I am and I found myself in this um, relationship which was a bit toxic and volatile but one great thing came out of it you know I have a daughter who's 25 I know I just I looked 25 <laughs> myself. That's true. It's very yeah. true. Yeah, that's, a, that's the, the one great thing that came out of it. I think from a young age, I knew something was different about me. But when you come from a family that is religious, um, that Christianity plays a big part, and it's always about not bringing shame to the family, you tend to conform to what the norm or the societal norms seem to be so um yeah I think I suppressed for quite a long time a part of me and then I came out 20 years ago. So when you were growing up were there any representatives of sort of the LGBTQI community that you felt like oh actually I can see myself in them? So I think like my first nightclub was a place called Hemel in Hemel Hempstead and I was there and I was like oh my gosh I can't believe I'm surrounded by so many women and women that just seem free to be who they are you know you had your butch white women you had your stud like black women you had your femme or your lipstick lesbian whatever it was and I felt like I was everyone there because it was just so liberating to be in a space that you have a shared commonality with somebody but then I realized it was predominantly white so you start to look for people that look like you that you know will understand some of the same struggles and coming into London you know you'd hear of people like Linda Bellos and regardless of her politics at the moment or what one thinks of it you can't take away from the politics and the path that she paved for black lesbian women at a particular period, being the first, you know, local councillor in Lambeth. Then there was Femi Otterju, who was the first black woman to be part of the London Lesbian Gay Switchboard. You had Monica Beadle, Veronica McKenzie. So I was starting to find all of these black women and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. You see so many women that had come before you and yes. you start to ask them stories of their journeys. It's funny, I went to a queer nightclub, I think it was last year, wasn't it, Ananda, that I went and I felt, um, I enjoyed it so much, but I also felt like because I hadn't grown up so I'm married, but I am bisexual. And I, because I hadn't grown up necessarily being out, um, I felt like being in this club 
I was frightened in the sense of, sorry, not frightened no, no, of other no. people, of, of myself, really. I understand that yeah. word frightened and being in that yeah. space, not that someone's going to come and attack you. No, it's no, just no. the fear of oh, something's new. Yes, absolutely. And that I hadn't, I felt like I hadn't learned the language growing up. Like the teen, I felt like I've been so in the male gaze for so long about how to dance, how to be attractive, how to, you know, how, how to flirt even. And I felt like suddenly I was in this new world where I haven't learned how to behave. I know that sounds false somehow but it made me realize that I'd missed out on so much from my teenagers those informative years that just weren't open to me and I was wondering whether it felt at all although similar for you even though obviously it was a huge relief to find that space finally whether you know coming into it in your 30s I suppose you must have been in your in your 30s maybe late 20s whether there was a similar thing there how do I work in this space Mm. well I love the way you put it about you know being frightened and you know hadn't learned how to to dance or behave I think it's something about unlearning the ways in which we are often conforming to that societal norm and you know you'll hear me say conforming quite a lot because I think that's something we we fall into so naturally so yeah I think for me just being in a space that meant I could start peeling off some of those layers of where I had not really been so authentic. I was not being truthful to myself about what I wanted, how I wanted it, you know, that I wanted to experience women in the fullest. I wanted to sit down and eat and talk and be intimate and connect with them on a different way that I was so used to a connection that had felt forced with men. But it was what society said was the right thing to do because you fall into this heteronormative way of living and then it becomes so binary, doesn't it? So... It felt good. <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> but it's the backlash that comes afterwards with it. It's because, you know, you have to not just deal with the fact that you're feeling empowered and emboldened to take particular steps and you feel that sense of beautiful connection to other women. But how do you explain that to those around you who are in that sort of heteronormative world of how we live? You mentioned that you came from a relatively conservative religious background. Is that part of what imposed its values on your thoughts and behaviours, say, in your late teens, 20s? I would say so. You know, you grow up going to church and when somebody of influence and power is constantly telling you how you live your life, that is what you do. Just like adult child parent scenario, I am the one who has influence and power about how my daughter's going to live her life. Um, So, you know, if I wag my finger and tell her that is really, really bad every time you touch that black purse, that is ingrained and embedded in her mind that you don't touch the black purse. Um, I I mean, I was always a bit of a rebel. So I was, I I call it the white sheep of the family. I don't call it the black sheep of the family, you know. And my parents said that I'm going to be the one to bring so much shame on the family. There you have it. I made them proud, you know. (laughs) 
was there a sort of a reckoning or a resolution for you with your parents or a difficult transition? You know, I often stay away from, and maybe because I'm comfortable with you two, but I often stay away from how I talk about the resolution between my mother and myself, especially because I'm a daddy's girl and, you know, I can do no wrong in his eyes. But my mother, I think because of how she's grown up herself, coming to this country and, you know, having to deal with difference, um, she's at tolerance stage. And this is like 20 plus years on and she's at tolerance stage. And this is generational and some of this, you know, links to my very own work that I do with Kaleidoscope Trust about the laws and the legislations that are in countries in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, which are colonial era laws imposed and put there by the British. So my mum has grown up knowing that it is a crime or it is a shame and you will bring dishonour on your family if you are falling into this Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, lifestyle of trying to say you love the same sex person as yourself so yeah I've come to acceptance so the resolution for me is that I'm no longer angry I'm not hurt the disappointment has lessened because I as an adult now I really understand that some of this is about unlearning and you know we can learn lots of things we can go to university and learn tons but to unlearn bad behaviours like what we're seeing in today's history, you know, people have to unlearn. They are or can be the potential to be racist. So, you know, the unlearning. And also in my language, there is no word that describes lesbians and gays and bisexual and trans people unless it's derogatory. Wow, so that's fascinating. That's a big key factor of how people of colour who are often from Asian backgrounds or, or African or Caribbean, maybe Creole speaking or Portuguese speaking, sometimes there's no word, definitive word, unless it is derogatory and then you end up claiming that word to describe sexual orientation or sexuality and I recognize that very much from what you say my dad who's a lovely man was you know sort of culturally homophobic if that makes sense sort of it was just how everyone behaved my dad was a very masculine man's man a bodybuilder and all of these things and those sort of archetypes really dragged through into his beliefs and so his idea of a sort of manly chat with, with me would be telling me about how attractive Pamela Anderson's knockers were um, and about how I should use condoms and stuff. And I was like, oh, OK, I'll take half of that conversation away with me. Thanks, Dad. Um, but, but, the knockers. Uh, but the knockers, well, basically, yeah. <laughs> Um, but as, as time progressed, you know, I mean, it took a long time for my dad to sort of meet my partner. Um, and so everyone else in the family, the first um, a meeting with my family I, I took him to was a small wedding of 300 people. Um, and actually, my cousin was marrying her husband. And I said, look, do you mind if I bring Matt? And she was like, oh, thank God. Anything, I, I'm marrying a black man, honey. Anything to take away from the challenge that's going to be my wedding. Yeah. And, it was, and it was fascinating. And we went to that wedding and there were so many interesting dynamics. I mean, partly they were wondering who the hell is this white man that's walked into this wedding um, because everyone else was a person of colour. But it also was within that people of colour, there was black people and there was sort of Asian people and it was quite segregated and their behaviours were different and there were people eating chicken out of the back of a van in one corner and then there were others eating samosas and it was just going... So he didn't come to that wedding because Matthew was going there. 
And it's taken a while for him to warm up. But now we stayed with my dad in India this year for the first time. And it was wonderful. And he hugged Matthew and he asks about Matthew now. And it's, I think we've got to the point that it's more than tolerance. Mm -hmm. It's sort of acceptance and kindness, which Which I think is really lovely, really lovely. So I'm really grateful for you sharing that about, you know, the difficulties that you've had. Yeah. And we, you know... We do. This is the very reason why UK Black Pride was created, because people say, oh, my gosh, you know, the black community, the BAME community, hard to reach. It's not that we're hard to reach, it's that we have different sets of challenges that when you look at prides in general, they have very much been quite patriarchal, you know, very male, very white, very cis and it didn't look at the various challenges that black and brown communities faced, like the history of whether it was slavery to colonisation, to language, to diction, to families, to religion, to belief and faith, to colorism, or even the anti-blackness, as you just mentioned, within the Asian community and the African Caribbean community. Prides never really look at those various intersections. So when creating an event or a movement or a pride, it's got to be intersectional. Otherwise, you end up erasing parts of who people are and then they don't feel like that's the space or the place for them to belong. Would you mind just telling a bit about the sort of history and history of UK Black Pride? So UK Black Pride, I get excited talking about it but it's also been a labour of love. It's not just a moment, just like Black Lives Matter is not just a moment, as some parliamentarians would have you think. It is absolutely a movement because we've brought together different parts and different facets of our communities, which is not just about celebrating which of course that's so important to have a space that we can celebrate but we remember pride in its form that it was about you know Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Stormé Delaware um, talking about enough is enough around police brutality you know Latino X and black and uh, African-American women gender non-conforming people were challenged by the police brutality, the lack of housing, the lack of education, the lack of even the safe spaces to protect them. And when you look at today's society, of course, we've come a long way, but there is still those components that are compounded by how we live. So black LGBTQ people, whether it's around youth homelessness and, you know, you can look at stats coming from the Albert Kennedy Trust, over 66 percent of their service users happen to be black and Asian minority ethnic. That's terrible. You know, and then you look at what's happening with trans people, our trans siblings right now, the vitriol, the propaganda and the nasty shit that's being thrown their way when literally they just want to survive and live. And I think in the last two weeks, and of course this is linked to America, but the last two weeks you have had six murders of trans women of colour. You know, on the 20th of November, every year we mark and commemorate trans people who have had their lives taken from them all too quickly. But 85% of that list happens to be trans women of colour. 
it shows you that for UK Black Pride, where we're coming from is about challenging the homophobia, biophobia, transphobia and Islamophobia, but also the racism, which is structural and systemic, not just outside in society, but within our own LGBT plus communities, because that is a real factor of, you know, what spaces we get to navigate, what spaces we're included in. And UK Black Pride, I think, has changed the tide of things. We are certainly you know, from 2005, where we started off in South End for 200 people being told that there will never be a Black Pride in this country, to 2019 and seeing 10,000 people descend on Haggerston Park and occupy and claim their space and connect with people as if that was their chosen family, because many of us may have been ostracised or marginalised by family members it feels like that's the right thing. It feels like it is something we can take pride of place in. It feels like it's home. It feels like we can dance and sing and cry and do it all together in a way that we feel lifted and we feel held. Um, And that's what prides are supposed to be about, as well as remaining political and putting people over profits. And that also plays a part in how it's sponsored as well, isn't it? I seem to remember that it's very carefully sponsored and curated in that way. Absolutely. I mean, anyone that organises a Pride knows that it costs a lot of money, especially if you're a free Pride like London Pride or, or UK Black Pride. You know, the logistics, the dynamics, the safety, the well-being, the police and the fire brigade, the transport for London, all of that costs money to make sure you hold a safe Pride. So you require sponsors that are going to give to you that allows you to put on this event. However, what we say, and I'll say speak specifically about UK Black Pride, we're not going to centre those sponsors in our pride. What we are asking them to do is play their good part in being an ally and making sure that their staff networks, if they are LGBT, if they're BAME or Black or POC, that they come and they take pride of place but they will not be front and centre of a pride, a black pride that was built and created by us and for us because we need to be centred because quite often, you know, history has taught us that we're not valuable, we're not respected. There's something I really found charming about your description about the beginnings of um, UK Black Pride and you and a few sort of co-founders headed to Southend in a series of buses. So you're going on this little trip and it's, it struck me that this was a sort of um, it was a, a bit of a road trip. But I can't even imagine the sort of the shock or surprise that Southend must have had <laughs> about I your can. arrival I on the beach. I remember the faces. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, was it, what was it like just being there in that sort of moment? Yeah, I mean, what I should explain is that in 2004, I was running with um, two other people, an organisation called Bluck, B-L-U-K, Black Lesbians in the UK. And that's that was our first road trip to Southend, because Southend, Broadstairs, Margate, those were my holiday places, because that's where my parents could afford to take us. When we descended on Southend, Shrewsbury Nest, to be exact, We were met with 
faces of horror and disbelief because we've got a couple of busloads of mainly, primarily black lesbians and black bisexual and black trans women um, getting off this bus to a space where you could see the sea. It was beautiful. And some people had never travelled outside of London. You know, they've come straight off the from the airports to being in a house in London and not connected or met anyone else. But when we got there, people were standing round. And obviously somebody must have called a couple of their friends because we had a group of White guys that I don't want to generalise, but reflected and reminded me back of my days in Hertfordshire, the BNP. They had the bomber jackets on and the DMs, and it almost felt like they had come to start something. But I kid you not, we had so much power in our collective beings and being in that space that we turned that volume up. And there was no way that anyone was going to infiltrate, anyone was going to try and dismantle or destroy what we had created. Because we don't get that opportunity often to hold spaces and to hold each other. So it was like, fuck you, you are not coming to mess with our shit because we are going to tear you down if you try to. So yeah, you know, we remember the look, but we also remember what it meant to be surrounded by each other. Huh. The power of that community. That's amazing. And I also found challenging sort of the difficulty, you mentioned it slightly earlier, about the power dynamics within the LGBTQIA structure, where you were trying to just have a bit of space but actually there were segments of that community that were kind of going, actually, there's no room for you. That must have been so difficult. I think that was probably the most hurtful thing, knowing that, you know, people within the LGBT plus community who had often understood what marginalisation, oppression means because of one's sexuality, sexual orientation, you know, from Section 28 to, you know, not being seen in the streets or being seen in the streets and being attacked just because they are LGBT. You can't quite comprehend why somebody wouldn't understand that, you know, the intersection between race and gender and class and sexuality, sexual orientation is all part of how we see our lives. So being told there would never be a black pride in this country was a complete dismissal or erasure of us as black and brown people. We would get told, why don't you just join the normal, quote unquote, normal pride I mean, I don't know what normal is, but I do know that we just don't fall into particular spaces and we're not just accepted. You know, there's a long history of this. And I always keep on talking about the history because in order to understand why UK Black Pride is here, you have to understand the historical context to how racism plays out. We are not just LGBT people. We are not just women. We are not just disabled. We are not just young. We're not just migrants. We're not just refugees. We're not just black people. We are so many different things that make up who we are that, you know, when someone says, 
oh, what do you fight for first? You can't make that distinction. I can't divorce myself from being an African lesbian woman. You know, if I took away away the lesbian, then am I not erasing a part of who I am and silencing that part to just fight for black rights? And that's why when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we've also got to say all black lives matter, whether they are queer black lives, trans black lives, whether they're disabled black lives. And I can go on and on and on (laughs) because I think that this is the unlearning that a lot of us have to do in understanding spaces, the parallels of history back then and also today, the sort of synergies that we can make. And really, what does true allyship look like if you are not black or non-POC that you're going to support in a meaningful way and not a performative tokenistic way. We had an amazing conversation with Wild Iris, who was a person of colour sex worker. And she was talking about how when she went to LGBT spaces, she didn't feel there was a place for her there. She felt very excluded. And she felt that the strongest degree of exclusion was from white gay men. And I, I sort of questioned going, I don't, why would that be? And she said, well, they just don't have their full privilege and they're really pissed off about that. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have the full privilege of the heterosexual white male. So actually they want to hold the alpha level of the gay world. And actually, mm-hmm. they, then there's no space. And you know, whether that's true or not, it, certainly for, for her it felt true. And certainly I felt a bit of that when I've been that place. So I can fully feel how excluded people can be because... You know, their own hurts. I mean, I recognise that actually the white LGBT community will have had their own um, sort of negative experiences based on you know, their sexuality, etc. Um, but there is an intersectionality that takes that further, I believe. Privilege is, is something that needs to be explored and understood in its fullest. And we all have, you know, just by virtue of us being on this call right now, we all have a kind of privilege. Of course, there's white privilege, which has been the superior and the dominating factor. But as a as a, a black African woman who was born in the UK, that's job is to travel around the world to look at how we uphold human rights for LGBT plus people. I also have a privilege over those who I set out to serve. I have a passport that takes me to a hundred odd countries without a visa. You know, I can travel and move around. I have a house, I have a car. Um, Those could be seen as privileges, but when you then make the comparison and the distinction about white privilege, you have to go back and understand that white privilege has been such an entitlement because our white brothers and sisters and siblings have benefited off the backs of black labour for so long that they don't even realise that it's a privilege. And when you talk about privilege, I think sometimes people you know, get uncomfortable or they get guilt, they feel guilty. And I say, you know, guilt serves no purpose. It's so self-indulgent. But let's be uncomfortable at the privileges you have and think of ways to ensure you use that wisely and correctly to amplify others that don't have the same level of access you do to good health, to education, to housing, to so many different things. And Um, I hope that I even use my small privileges that I have in the right way when helping 
you know, human rights defenders in the global south that can't even travel and don't even know where their next meal is going to come from or how they're going to support their other civil society colleagues or comrades in a climate of COVID. So I think that I have learnt, and I'm not saying this is the right way, but I have learnt that I always understand that what I have is absolutely great and I'm grateful for it all. But I also know that there are so many others that don't have that. And maybe that's one of the many great things my parents have instilled in me from coming to this country to constantly talking about wanting a better life for their children, sending me to a bloody school where I was the only black person uh, that drove me crazy. But they wanted good for me so that I can in turn make sure my children and my children's children also had good. They were fighters. They were the beacons of education because they knew that that would help you navigate the world in a particular way. And I'm now able to do that in my work. I wish I could do it as greatly in my relationships. But, you know, I I like to know that I am changing I'm a change maker. I like to believe that I am doing my bit to leave a legacy that when my daughter comes to taking up that baton, that she can stand up for the next generation that comes after her as well. Mm. Wow. She must be very, very proud of you and, and vice versa. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> can I just mention, sorry, I wanted to mention this book. So Sister which is an anthology that you contributed to, um, and particularly talking about UK Black Pride, which we've discussed, um, which was uh, which is lovely. And it's a, sort of a fantastic book. I mean, it's a really good book. It sort of, sort of deals with so many aspects, such as the, you know, the politics of black hair and the silence of families to sexuality, the importance of reputation and behaviour, the wonder of being seen and represented on TV, sort of love and loss and redemption, um, you know, um, the challenges of being a black lesbian with a white partner and waking up and thinking in bed with them actually you don't know me and you'll never know me that's part of my experience that you'll never achieve and never reach so I mean it's, it's a it's a wonderful thing to, to have been able to, to access and read because it, it gives you a point of view that I don't really hear about I mean I'm a gay man and I recognize that in LGBT I hear a lot a plus I hear a lot more from the G <laughs> um, and, and I just wondered about um how you felt about um, the fact that the, the, the L was, in, well, f- for my world, felt relatively quiet and silent. The book, I, not just a contributor, I co-edited it because there are, two, there are two men who co-edited it with me that maybe sometimes, um, you know, Ricky and John, who are amazing, but I always, always stress that I was a co-editor because you don't often find black lesbian women who are editors of of books. Um, The L is often silenced, but also so is the B, especially in our communities. And I think that that is an admission of guilt that we all play because people describe prides as, oh, gay pride, or, oh my gosh, that person's gay, when actually... They may not be gay, they may be bisexual, they might be bicurious, they may be questioning, they may be, uh, you know, non-binary. Oh, they're gay. Uh, And gay is a word that's thrown about that sort of tries to encompass everybody. 
but I love how you've read that book because it does, it talks about everything from hair to interracial relationships, same gender, loving women. It says so much. There's poems about our blackness and how we're not centered. And, you know, there's stories about home. And I say home back in Africa or the Caribbean that play out about how we navigate our world when we're here in the UK. So there's so much. The book is powerful. And in a time like this, where people are looking for resources and understanding how they can understand racism and the dynamics better, pick up the sister anthology. You know, I didn't even have to give that shameless plug. You did it. <laughs> you did it for me. I genuinely really, really enjoyed it because obviously there are there are themes that are that that travel the world and and the, and the, yeah, they're transhuman, aren't they? The experience about being alone or feeling excited about a potential relationship or about feeling lost or feeling that you could redeem yourself or you know, all of these things that are so important and particularly what it it was the, sort of the warmth of female sexuality mm. and what particularly struck me was the title you chose because it specifically says same gender loving women and that was interesting to me because when in my world because I work in sexual function the sort of term is men who have sex with men Mm -hmm. it's not about relationships it's not about love MSM yeah and so it was intriguing to hear to see sort of um, SGLW if we're going to go for our acronyms uh, versus MSM and I found that yes I'd never heard I'd never heard this phrase before yes the same gender loving women is Some of us don't subscribe to the word lesbian, but we do talk about being lovers of women, you know. Mm -hmm. And I I remember when I was telling my mum in my seven-page letter when I was coming out that I'm a woman who loves women because I couldn't put down the word lesbian because she doesn't understand or subscribe to that word at all. But it has something so beautiful about saying loving women, you know, and we can we can love women in many different ways. You know, I've fallen in love with you already. You know, you, you told me and we can love. Of course, I love you, too. I'm not excluding. But, you know, you, know, <laughs> Thanks, you start getting all patriarchal on me and saying it's got to be about me. But, you know, there's a connection that women have with each other. And we can look up, we can watch the TV and say, oh my gosh, she's beautiful, she's stunning. I just absolutely, you can desire somebody without having to want to touch them or without wanting to be, you know, physically sexual with them. You can be intimate, even in your mind, with another woman. I can sit here and talk to you for ages because we're going to have a connection about our experiences of being women. And our experiences of not being seen as the top of the the ladder, of often being seen or not seen, I should say. So I love saying I'm a lover of women. Because it also releases any, I don't know, um, prejudices or, I mean, I think we should absolutely own the word lesbian, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But same gender loving women does um, release us from um, prejudices that we might have had inbred in us as well or um, assumptions or maybe I think using the word loving actually is so useful <laughs> and and honest yeah. as well. But it strikes yeah. me that if you had MLM, so men who love men, I think they would, that would be, it would feel more challenging and I find that huh. odd. Oh, that's interesting because maybe... 
And just unpicking that slightly, maybe men loving men seeming odd to you I I think it's beautiful but I I think that there's something about that that breaks down the stigma that men who have sex with men are promiscuous for me same gender loving women is about love in its many different forms whether that love took place around just having sex but that sex was about love making and then you know she pissed off afterwards we still had a love moment it was you know yeah I think the word love is a beautiful one and we think that if we love somebody oh it's got to lead to marriage whereas actually you can love someone in the moment I totally agree and it's some it's a bit of a journey I feel I've been on as well uh, yeah over the past sort of five years really about love and intimacy with friends and knowing I suppose I find it difficult to talk about because I'm still on that journey, actually. So I haven't got a conclusion. <laughs> um, I just, I, I, it sort of feels quite amorphous. And the, and the desiring and the friendship, quote unquote friendship, because actually it can be quite sensual. Um, and those boundaries are starting to melt. And so it, it makes one think about, you know, sexuality a lot. And, oh, well, if I'm desiring this person in this way, what does that mean for the friendship? Or what does that mean for my sexuality? And can I um, satisfy myself with just simply the desire? Or does it have to be physicalised? Mm-hmm. What happens if you then physicalise it? And what happens to the, the friendship or the relationship mm-hmm. after that? It fe- it's, it's interesting. It feels like it's, um, it's very fluid. <laughs> I don't know why I'm grinning so much. I'm grinning like a Cheshire cat because I'm like, yes. Mm, yeah, I like, want to click <laughs> my fingers. I think part of the journey, because even myself, I'm on a journey and it will never, ever stop. It's when you feel like there has to be a conclusion that that's what you're working towards. Whereas don't make it so fixed. Mm. You know, Mm. I am understanding what it means more to be polyamorous at this precise moment in my head and I'm reading lots of different books I'm speaking to other people and I'm like oh right that sounds really interesting because I've got to a stage where I'm not sure I believe I can love just one person but then that's just me I mean he sat there thinking oh Matt you know, I love Matt, but, oh, yes, actually, I could love... I And I also think that one person is... Oh, this is not good to say, or is it good to say? Yeah, I'm not sure one person is enough for me, and I don't think that I'm just enough for one person. I'm not yes. going to give somebody everything yes. they desire. And, and why and why should you and why should they that what what a huge um responsibility to place on a person that they must be everything to to you yeah I, yeah and i i love beautiful relationships where they have found that and they've got married or they're in a a beautiful place i have so many friends who are you know women and women who are married home the cat the plants everything's there and it's all set up and they're happy but i realize that maybe that happiness of what i'm searching for because i am still searching i'm on that journey what i'm searching for is is not the the heteronormative way of I've got to meet somebody, desire them. We have this lust 
and then we fall in love and then we think about what the future looks like and then we sort of move in together and then we sort of think about you know marriage or you know whatever that looks like why can't it just be that you might have multiple relationships where somebody's there that stimulates your mind in a particular way where you can be political and you know not be called aggressive or angry and have that conversation and then there might be somebody who oh my gosh you know you don't want them to talk you just want to have sex with them because they are so damn friggin hot and you know just shut up please don't say a word don't say a word let's just have (laughs) sex you know and then there might be somebody who allows the sensitive me to come out the the vulnerable and also me understanding what patience looks like what Mm. what beauty looks like by being open and letting down some of those guards and to date, I've never met one woman that has, oh, look, the, the, the exes are going to be listening to this thinking, she had it, but she didn't look after it. <laughs> but I've never met one woman who has been able to give me all of that or that I've even been able to give all of that to. And that really resonates with what I've found. And I've been in a relationship now for 11 years and I've had to... I've had to evolve my understanding of what relationships are. I've had to recognise that I can have a crush on some of my friends. And actually, because I'm opening myself up in terms of being more intimate and, and being able to have conversations that I previously would have thought more challenging, that level of intimacy, you, you know, you kind of go, where is this going? As both of you are tending to going, oh, this is going somewhere a bit funny. And you can either feel very uncomfortable with that and then you know, retract back from that. Or you can kind of just go, look, you know, I love my partner and I'm going to have a very sort of mind intimate friendship with this person and I can still love them and adore them and think they're incredible. I make the choice that I won't be physically you know, intimate with them. But, you know, who knows in the future? You know, I, Matt, don't listen. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but I think the issue is about uh, feeling that you can have these crushes, feeling that you can be intimate um, without having that sense that you're going to be judged or that it's a really bad thing for you to actually have more than one partner. And it's the moral judgment of going, Mm. there's a primacy of one person. I mean, actually, I do believe in, for me, a relative primacy of one person. I can only love one person the maximum, and that's about it. But I can like and love parts of other people. There's nothing wrong with, you know, we talk about alternative families and alternative relationships. I, you know, I know people who have been in relationships for years and actually they may be swingers or they may have, you know, a kind of open relationship that is not necessarily polyamorous, but is allowing them to have dialogue and conversation and go out to meet other people. And it may not be sexual, you know, so I think we're a society that is ever so judgmental that's why you know when we say the word polyamory we kind of whisper it or i even feel for my bisexual and bi-curious siblings that they often have to say yeah i'm bisexual whereas don't whisper it shout it from the rooftops and it's there's nothing wrong that you feel attracted to both men and women or even non-binary or gender fluid people i think let's find a different way of shaping the narrative that allows us to be open and much freer about who we choose to love or be intimate with or who we just want to fuck you know 
<laughs> whatever yeah. it is yeah I was wondering what those sort of early um, relationships were um, when you first started seeing other women coming to it a little bit later how was that I'm a very sensual person and I am quite deep and I'm an overthinker and I could be intimate with my pillow and you know talk to it in a way I, I love words so I think when Oh, and I remember that first person. It was an experience that felt so right, like it was meant to be. Not with her that it was meant to be, but it felt so right that it was meant to be with another woman. Yeah. There was a a softness. There was a connection. There was a, a realness that I hadn't experienced from where I had dated or had intimate relationships with men and there was oh, I think the word I would say a connection when we touched mm-hmm. because she knew what my body and my mind and my soul required in that moment of needing to be loved from my head to my toe that was my coming of dawn and I was like oh my gosh if this is what it feels like what have I been waiting for for so long why did I hold that back and you know being a a lesbian is not about the sexual act but it's all part of it and I find it hard to describe that feeling because it's so it's right here in my core it's a feeling that has tingled me from my head to my toe. It's a a feeling that has made me feel pleasure in so many different ways. It's a feeling that you want more of because it feels right. Some people, when they, um, for example, first experience um, sex with the the partner they find attractive, etc., they feel a sense of shame alongside that joy and feeling of right. Did you have any of that sense at all? Was it just that sense of rightness? No, I I don't think shame came into it. Maybe shame when coming out to others because that felt difficult because of where their mindsets were. But if we're talking about that intimacy and connection, no, there was no shame. I think that there was a built-up tension of not knowing that this is what it felt like. So I think the first time I experienced an orgasm with a with a woman, it was like, oh my gosh, I cried. I literally cried because I didn't know that's what it would feel like. I, I feel very emotional hearing what you're saying um, because I really relate to it. And, oh, it's actually making me cry. I'm also heavily pregnant, by the way, so I'm quite emotional, (laughs) generally. But having having sex with women, there's something about, for me, about it that has been about being seen. And again, very hard to describe, but that sort of feeling of being seen and understood and about communication in a way that often with um, heterosexual relationships that I've had has been more about sort of performance or how I wish to be seen um, as opposed to being very vulnerable actually and very open. And it's um, 
yeah, it's very, it's very special. And of course, it's not always like that. It doesn't always have to be tender and communicative and seen, you know, it can be, you know, of course. But those really poignant one moments where um, you feel like you've got your heart out on a plate, ultimately. <laughs> and, it, and, it's a, and it's a relief. Yeah. And you're allowed to be emotional. You don't, don't ever, ever apologise for being emotional. <laughs> be unapologetic. It's okay to cry. It's okay to laugh. And, you know, I, I know what pregnancy is like. My hormones are all over the place. But trying to explain a feeling that we felt is often difficult to do so. And sometimes we just know. Sometimes, you know, all you've got to say is, it just felt so real. Yeah, yeah. And then we just know, it, regardless what type of relationship you're in, we just know that that feeling felt right at that precise moment. And, you know, we, we should also point out that sex and lovemaking and intimacy can also be quite raw and gritty. Sex is not always cute depending on what you do and how you decide to be intimate uh, or sexual with each other. From my point of view I think it's it's healthy because I spend so much time trying to be proper and appropriate and say the, the right thing and not get yeah. things wrong that I kind of want to let that go a bit. That is actually how I feel. And I feel so much of the time the pressure not to say how I feel. I love how open you two are. This is great. I, I feel really comfortable yeah. and I'm like, you know, I don't often get the chance to be Phil and to talk about, uh, you know, sex intimacy. But I, I, I love the fact that we're speaking and I'm Phil. I'm not, you're not speaking to Lady Phil, and I know yeah. that sounds like in the third sense, because Lady Phil has this persona that, um, like you were just saying, have to be proper and have to be, you know, a little bit conservative in what I do say, how I do say it, you know. So, yeah, I've, I've really welcomed this conversation. See, it's happened at the right time. All those cancellations and moving it about, I needed this conversation right now. Find out more about Phil's work with UK Black Pride, the Kaleidoscope Trust and her anthology sister from the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex, and of course, pleasure. pleasure.